This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good afternoon. It's Sunday, October 20th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. And on Sundays, the day's college football news is the games that just happened on Saturday. So Trey Scott joins me, Connor Tapp, to unpack everything we just witnessed. Trey, you know, first several weeks of the season, I feel like we're all sitting around as college football observers and saying, boy, things sure are feeling chalky. We got a lot of favorites winning, not too many wild upsets. And at least for me, I seem to personally forget this every year, that you really got to wait until mid-October before the fatigue of, uh, of the just... The, the playing a football season causes you to do insane things like lose to Illinois. Yeah, it's uh, we do this every year where we say, "Oh, nothing is really happening that much," and then and then things start to kind of happen, and then we also get sucked into the trap of like projecting like things based on a month from now. Like last week, right. all I was saying was, "Man, I can't wait for Wisconsin at Ohio State on October twenty sixth," yeah. and then Wisconsin like. We, we, surprises are just so frequent now and point spreads are almost so meaningless. 20 points means nothing. Wisconsin was a 30 point favorite at Illinois uh, and, and really had no excuse of losing that game except for the fact that they just lost it. And I, I, this season, I, I think week eight, week seven was sort of the week that we had expectations delivered and started to kind of see a lot of great matchups play out. And week eight, I think is, and we'll talk about it, not just as far as the Wisconsin-Illinois game, but where a lot of weird things started to happen and a lot yep. of groundwork has now been laid for a uh, the final month and a half that could be pure chaos. Yeah, let's start with the biggest upset of the week and indeed the season so far. The Illinois Fighting Illini upset the Wisconsin Badgers in Champaign 24-23 on a game-winning field goal as time expires. This... You know, as you were saying, Trey, we're all looking ahead to the Ohio State game next week, and perhaps so was Wisconsin. I don't really know how you explain a a loss like this with the disparity and the quality of the team that we've seen so far to this point in the season without at least thinking that played a bit of a role here. There's no explanation. And you look up the morning after, and Wisconsin's still number one in total defense and yards per play. Defense is not why it lost this game. Jack Cohn turned the ball over. Jonathan Taylor turned the ball over. Uh, neither of those things can happen. Wisconsin, as we all know, is going to win games uh, with defense and running and, and and slowing things down. And when Wisconsin has to work to score and when, when Wisconsin has to overcome turnovers to, to win, I think that's where they're going to have trouble. And I don't, I don't even know, Connor, like I, I don't feel that differently about Wisconsin today than I did on Friday. I, I think they still have 
all the makings of a, of a really good team. And I think they still have all the ingredients of a team that could challenge Ohio State. It just, to me, sort of feels like the worst things that could have happened to Wisconsin happened. Like, Illinois only had a few chances to win this game, and that was if Wisconsin turned the ball over and if Wisconsin shot itself in the foot. And all of those things happened. But I still, Wisconsin, to me, it's not like their defense got exposed. No. And it's not like Jack Cohn, like, you know, turned the ball over five times. It's just one turnover of his. One fumble of Jonathan Taylor, which unfortunately is sort of a thing for Jonathan Taylor. If he has any shortcomings, it's, it's fumbling. So, I, it, it's shocking. But I don't know if it changes how I feel about the Badgers too much, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I will say it's a little bit shocking to see Jonathan Taylor only average 4.7 yards per carry against Illinois. And the, the thought that if you if you can slow him down, that's possible, apparently, A. And then B, once you do that, Wisconsin is kind of susceptible to the normal team mistakes. Like to, having two turnovers at really bad times cost them the game, basically. Um, and you thought, based on the way they were playing, so dominant on defense particularly, that you know you could go to Illinois, turn the ball over a few times, and not have that kill you. But I think my takeaway was if you if you can slow down Jonathan Taylor, then they really start to look mortal kind of across the board. Yeah, maybe the thing well, – I guess what I'm trying to say is when Georgia lost to South Carolina, I think it was Georgia – in a way, maybe playing outside of its brand or its pattern of football when you know Jake Fromm is throwing 30 times or more. They haven't won a game in his career when they're doing that. Wisconsin just did Wisconsin things on Saturday, but it had the mistakes that it, it can't afford. I, I wonder I, – I think I heard on College Game Day on Saturday that they were expecting a Vegas spread, which will come out later today, for Wisconsin-Ohio State to be around plus like 10 points anyway for Ohio State, which would be at home. Mm. I wonder if that changes too much, but maybe – this is also a reminder we are all looking ahead to Wisconsin-Ohio State. Maybe that game wasn't going to be so close anyway. I don't know. So a lot of focus on Wisconsin, and rightly so, but there's now a possibility that other teams, this creates a, an opportunity for other teams in the Big Ten West to kind of sneak in and make this a race. We're kind of just taking it for granted at this point that Wisconsin was going to come out of that division. But now you look, Minnesota is 7-0 and after beating Rutgers 42-7. to And while that outcome isn't necessarily shocking, as Minnesota continues to win, I think we have to start asking questions about how credibly are the Golden Gophers in this race to potentially win this division. I mean, they'll have a chance to... Uh, decided on the field of course uh, but uh, that's that's starting to look a lot more interesting um, and for Illinois this is their first win over a Big Ten opponent a ranked Big Ten opponent since 2007 the Illini are now three and four and I think this win probably buys Lovey Smith at least through the end of the year oh it's, yeah I don't yeah I mean it it I you know I'm not super pl I'm not plugged into uh, Illinois football and like what the fans want there, but it kind of felt like, man, you just let let Lovey come in there and be Lovey, you know, coach the Bears for forever and just let him come in and kind of uh, be the king of his uh, of his domain in in Champaign and um, and but things were starting to just go like a little bit. They were just like not getting off the ground at all to the degree in the in his first four years, where you're like, okay, I guess maybe they have to make a move. But I think you know this win is pretty big. Yeah, this, I, I'll attack both of those. So the only th issue with, I mean, not the only issue, but an issue right now with Illinois is they're not recruiting well. 88th nationally. Yeah. 
only have eight commits. So, so that number would rise. Last year, they were 53rd. So yes, maybe this buys Lovey Smith the security, the public backing now needed for him to say, okay, uh, commit to my program. We can build something here. Because I do like what he's done via the transfer portal. I know we've talked about yes. that plenty. And that was sort of a Band-Aid move. So now they need to deliver with the recruiting class. This win gives them the latitude to do that. The Minnesota part's really interesting, Connor. So Minnesota will play Penn State on November 9th. And then Minnesota will play Wisconsin uh, on November 30th. And it's going to host both games. Let's say Minnesota lost to Wisconsin. The fact, though, that Wisconsin now lost to Illinois, and let's say Wisconsin loses to Ohio State. Like, Minnesota could make the Big Ten title game even if they lose to Wisconsin. Let's say they knock off Penn State. There's wiggle room here, plenty of wiggle room. Minnesota absolutely controls its own destiny, has the next two tough games. It's toughest two remaining tests at home. No one expected uh, two weeks ago for us to be talking about Minnesota in the Big Ten title game because we all thought it would sort of be Ohio State-Wisconsin part two. So that's a shocker. And last thing here for the Wisconsin, the loss as far as how does it affect the playoff race. I guess Wisconsin still kind of controls its own destiny in the way Georgia does where we're not really – we don't really believe that it does. But this officially eliminates the Big Ten from – uh, two-team playoff contention, not that I really bought any of that talk, but uh, I don't think now we have a scenario in which Wisconsin and Ohio State split games and they both make it in. Yeah, Wisconsin, of course, would probably play, play Ohio State twice if they were to come out as the, the Big Ten Conference champion, so that, that would certainly be pretty impressive for them. I, you know, uh, With the Pac-12, we have our doubts about whether a one-loss team would get in, but I, I don't think we have that concern with the Big Ten, even with the even from the coming out of the weaker division, the Big Ten West. Other sleepy starts across the country, and I guess Texas's game against Kansas was a sleepy start that turned in almost into turned into a sleepy loss. Um, Trey, this was on the Longhorn Network, so I and millions of other people did not see this. But Texas wins fifty to forty eight on a game winning field goal. What happened here? This is when a wins is still a loss, and this is an absolute nightmare. Texas needed a game winning drive with one minute left. Texas needed a 33-yard field goal to win this thing. Texas's defense, look, we can talk about it till we're blue in the face. They can't tackle, and they're injured, and their secondary is dinged up, and whatever. There's no excuse, though, Connor. You, Texas's backups and third stringers should be able to hang with Kansas. This is a demoralizing win for the program. I mean, a loss would have been way worse. I'm not sure how they would have recovered from a loss, to be honest with you. A loss would have made them 4-3. and three. Um, A loss would have really set them back as far as recruiting perception is concerned. A loss would have brought back the Texas's back uh, cat calls. But this is not. Uh, this is an ugly one, and this is this is sort of rubber meets road for Tom Herman and his team at five and two. TCU next week, but I look. Iowa State still to go. Baylor still to play. TCU, Texas Tech. If Texas's defense doesn't get things figured out, and they're second to last in the conference in yards per play with just a litany of starters injured, this team might be looking at eight and four. It was a very weird day for the SEC East. It started off at noon Eastern in Columbia, South Carolina, where Florida and the Gamecocks were playing in the middle of Tropical Depression Nestor. Florida trailed 17-10 to early in the third quarter, but go on to win 38-27. Lots of South Carolina fans mad about officiating, but we're not going to dwell on that here. Um, Florida, I mean, coming out of that LSU game, 
from the emotion to the injuries to Jonathan Grenard and other key players on defense. Like, to me, this was always just to survive this game and whatever happened in it, I'm not even... (laughs) I'm not even too concerned about it. Just get this win on the road against the South Carolina team with some renewed confidence coming off of that big upset over Georgia. I Florida did not look great for a lot of this game, but I'm I'm not really worried about it. They're probably like off of the board national title-wise for me right now, but I think they're absolutely in the mix SEC East-wise. Has Kyle Trask, or we, he's pretty much locked that job up for next year. Yeah, I think so. You're pretty impressed by him. I am. I think so, too. He just does like all of these little gritty, instinctual things that are super annoying when you're a fan of the team that's playing against him, where it seems like the play is a bust, and he just you know takes a little step to evade pressure, or like you're 10 seconds into the play, and he somehow finds somebody breaking off of their route as as the play's kind of breaking down and uh he's really annoying and um uh yeah he's i he just adds that little extra dimension that felipe franks never really gave them i don't think i'm gonna be pretty annoying here and say something um it's all surprising like when you watch kyle trask how gritty and and the, the instinct instinctive plays he makes Especially considering Connor, he hadn't started a game since freshman year of high school. Yeah. Um, because he was Derek King's backup at Manville High. I think, and this is super annoying and kind of on brand for me, the the quarterback cradle that is the state of Texas probably has something to do with Kyle Trask being ready for this moment because he has probably been groomed by the best of the best as far as QB coaches and private trainers and and, and, and fit since fourth and fifth grade when you know in Texas high school football the uh, the the varsity coaches sort of even work with the pop Warner coaches to make sure the players all sort of learn uh, the, the the basics of their playbook and it's, it's he's just super impressive and it almost doesn't matter as far as any experience he's had and the last thing I'll say about it is he is he is just a, a shining example of waiting your time uh, and, and being sort of around a program and, and learning the playbook and learning the system. And it's sort of, you know, you put a guy, a smart kid like that uh, with a really good quarterback coach, a quarterback whisperer and Dan Mullen, you give them, them a few years together. I think you can make some magic happen. Uh, I'm super bullish on Florida right now. I'm super excited for the Florida Georgia game to see what they can do. And I also, I'm really excited about Kyle Trask long-term as they sort of start to look to 2020 as maybe Florida's year. Yeah, what a what a mixture of quarterback and coach just with the Dan Mullen, man. It, this was like a vintage Dan Mullen game where just lots of lots of really interesting surprising calls and Kyle Trask is like an off-speed pitch of a quarterback and just mm-hmm. a perfect fit. Um and yeah, and you you mentioned the 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 fact that he's been waiting his time and he's a backup and I know Charles Power has written uh, for 24-7 Sports recently, kind of explaining, maybe kind of looking back on what what did we get wrong rating Jake Bentley so highly. And Jake Bentley was a he, – he did not have a lot of reps in high school because of a number of factors, including the decision to not play his senior season. And just the fact the absence of those reps ends up, you know, low stakes reps, a chance for you to develop and not having that is – ultimately pretty detrimental to your development. So kind of wild to see Kyle Trask, 
you know, not not have those opportunities in high school and then come and grow into his own on the college stage where the stakes are so much higher and the competition is so much tougher. Georgia 21, Kentucky 0. This one was 0-0 at halftime, if I'm not mistaken. Jake Fromm, 2.9 yards per pass, 270 yards of total offense for Georgia in this one. Uh, and this was another game. It seemed like every game across the country, at least in the Southeast, was played in the middle of this torrential downpour. Um, so I don't know how much we want to discount what we saw or didn't see from Georgia's offense in this one. But, you know, just taking it for what it was, a pretty ugly offensive performance for the Bulldogs. A week after, maybe you would have liked to see them bounce back and really show you something following the really disappointing loss to South Carolina. I watched most of this one. I was pretty fascinated by you it. You did? That I'm mon- sorry. Yeah. No, that <laughs> monsoon, that monsoon is like, the, I've. it's rare to see a football game played in that kind of weather. Kentucky quarterback, I guess he's a quarterback, Lynn Bowden Jr., uh, former receiver, was two for 15. Connor, it looked impossible to play a football game. It looked like Georgia was just just trying to get out of there with a W after 0-0 halftime. So I'm not going to freak out about Jake Fromm being 9 for 12 and his counterpart was 2 for 15 because at least they had DeAndre Swift, uh, 179 yards, a touchdown run of 39 that sort of uh, broke the game open. It truly looked like – I and mean, it, it was. It truly looked like first one to seven or first one to any points wins, and that's the case because Kentucky was shut out. That – that weather is so bad. So I, I'm not too worried about Georgia there. All right. Well, let's keep it in the SEC and the SEC East because for a minute on Saturday, it looked like Tennessee was going to mess around and make the third Saturday in October an actual football game. Uh, tons of different narrative items to unpack from this one. I think, I guess chief among them has to be the injury, well, let's first mention the score, 35-13, to 13, Alabama. You know, the kind of the decisive moment in the game is when Jarrett Garantano goes rogue and goes against the play call on fourth and one from the goal line and tries to sneak it over. It gets knocked out and returned all the way back to the other end for a touchdown. At that point, the game's over. But prior to that, Tua Tungabailoa exits the game with an ankle injury. And now his status for the LSU game in a couple weeks is in some pretty serious doubt. I have a high level of concern here because Mac Jones did not look very good. No, there there has never been any, and Mac Jones has been in the program for three years now. This isn't a shot at Mac Jones, but we haven't ever heard Connor, any sort of inside the program clamoring. Oh, Mac Jones looks great. Just wait for Mac Jones's chance in 2020. This will be Mac Jones's job. I don't think there's a very high amount of confidence in him. Uh, I, the, the, the Bama message boards were almost suggesting they just next week against Arkansas without Tua just go wildcat uh, with Slade Bolden because mm. that would be more effective than Mac Jones. So Tua had uh, a minor ankle surgery uh, Sunday morning, uh, Nick Saban said. Wow. Uh, successful tightrope procedure on his right ankle. It's the same injury, opposite ankle that Tua injured last season, and we all sort of know what happened last year. When the injuries really piled up for Tua, he wasn't close to the same guy. This this was the result or the moment, I think, where the college football season could change. Yeah, what Tua's injury and seeing how Mac Jones and the rest of the Alabama team performed after Tua left the game really made me realize something I hadn't really been thinking about until this happened, which is that 
what's happened to the Alabama offense the past couple of years is not so much scheme overhaul and this and that. I mean, that's happened at, at, at the edges. But really, this has been about Tua being yes. just incredible. And because the way Alabama went on to win this game, it felt very, uh, you know, earlier, first half of this decade, Alabama went over Tennessee. Like, Tennessee's kind of in it. They're kind of in it into the second half. And then just a key mistake, and then the defense pounces, and then you're done. Um, but not did not have, not the dynamism on the offensive side of the ball. And I guess if you're an Alabama fan, you're hoping Bryce Young is Bryce Young is ready to go as a true freshman. Yeah, he will be. This is it's a sort of a dance with the devil to be so Tua dependent. I think you do it because it's worth it. Because when he's healthy, nobody can stop you. But this is a very similar scheme to what Alabama was running two years ago when Jalen Hurts was the quarterback, and they had some sneaky, some tight games there. And when you're so Tua dependent, Alabama has lost a little bit of its identity as far as the ground and pound. I don't have any sort of faith in them just saying, Najee, we're going to give you the ball 25 times and you're going to win us this game. That Alabama can't do that anymore. And look, Alabama fans listening will appreciate the, the correlation I'm going to make. I'm going to go back to my Texas roots. When Colt McCoy got injured in the national title game, Texas had no running identity all season because they had just leaned on Colt. Like a Texas run back in the day was just a Colt McCoy screen pass. And that's almost what Alabama has now without Tua. It's going to be very interesting. If Tua cannot go against LSU, Alabama has no chance. Wow, that is such a remarkable thing to to say. And I, and I don't disagree with it, but man, that just – that that's, that's isn't wild. it nuts? I yeah. think it's I think it's worth it to be so quarterback dependent, right? Yeah. Like I think it's worth it because look how else are you going to win a national title in this day and age when you have so many good college football teams? But when you lose that one key piece, when you have an offense like that, you're really you're really struggling. You're really going to struggle. With, with the other games going on, I did not really see any of this one. Missouri fourteen, Vandy twenty one, kind of a shocking result. Vandy had only won one game so far this year, and it kind of seemed like the writing was on the wall for Derek Mason in Nashville. But shocking win for the Commodores, and it kind of it, there were, there were moments throughout Saturday. Tennessee's kind of being competitive against Alabama. South Carolina's has, has a lead into the second half against Florida. Georgia and Kentucky are scoreless at halftime, where you kind of think, man, we are going to see some really. Like the SEC is going to SEC East is going to be turned on its head, but by the end of the day, Missouri goes down, Florida wins, Georgia wins, and it kind of looks like ultimately what we all thought it would be at the start of the season, which is Georgia and Florida at the top, and then everybody else. I think maybe the difference is Florida is probably a little bit, little bit less separation between Georgia and Florida at this point in time, if if they're not neck and neck, honestly, at this point. Um, so interesting day in the SEC. East and in the SEC in general, even though not a whole lot of uh, huge shocking results. Uh, Baylor is still undefeated. 45-27 to win over Oklahoma State. Charlie Brewer goes over 300 yards on just 17 pass attempts. Lots of explosive plays for Baylor in this one. Uh, uh, Trey, is Baylor the second best team in the Big 12 right now? Yes, Baylor is the second-best team in the Big 12. Uh, they're top three in the conference as far as offense and defense. Yards per play allowed and, and per team. They're big and they're fast, and that's how Matt Rules built this team. 
That's how he built Temple and turned them into a team that could beat Penn State, which Temple did. Uh, and that's what they're doing here, here in Waco. And the interesting thing about Baylor, the non-conference schedule was cake. So the team had some chance to just really gel out the gate. And the early portion of its Big 12 slate was kind of cake too. Um, until Saturday at Stillwater, Vegas had Oklahoma State as a three-point favorite. A lot of people, including myself, thought Oklahoma State was going to kind of win easily. And so Baylor's gotten through this run. And now you think about November, in which Oklahoma and Texas, even though I doubt that Texas is really even any good, both come to Waco. All Baylor has to do, really, is split those two games, and it's mm. going to get its redemption chance in the Big 12 title game. And for Matt Rule to have this team in that conversation is one of the best coaching jobs of the decade because they were winless two years ago. Yeah, it's just This is just incredible. I, that Baylor has had a turnaround at all after the Art Bryles scandal is shocking because I thought Baylor was just going to go back to its pre-Bryles status as doormat. And not only have they have they bounced back to a top 25 level college football team, they now are playing with a toughness um, that Bryles' teams never had, and uh, which is why Bryles' teams never, despite the fact that they should have been BCS contenders every single year never were because they'd always blow again they shouldn't baylor has all the makings of the second best team in the big 12 and i think they're going to have a chance in the big 12 title game to prove that they are the best team in the big 12 how do you win a game in which you turn over the ball four times well holding the opponent to what 136 yards of total offense and just four completed passes certainly doesn't hurt that's what utah did to arizona state on saturday the utes win 21 to 3 and you know Utah lost to USC, and we're like, okay, RIP, Pac-12 South. Y'all y'all are out of the playoff conversation, and they probably still are. But Utah, at least in terms of their performances lately, uh, if they keep winning, they'll have an argument, I think. Right? Yes, uh, because they would have to win against Oregon. Um, who's going to emerge out of the North. And I still don't think the Pac-12 is going to have a playoff team. I'm going to be very – I do not think that's going to happen because there are so many other good teams. But the Pac-12 does have two really good teams. I think we were were reminded of that Saturday. Utah's defense is just smothering. And Oregon has this really great combo of offense and defense with a quarterback in Justin Herbert who – might have had his best career game in a moment that really mattered for him. Four touchdowns as they outdueled Washington at 35-31. Jacob Beeson had three. It was a really good game. Yeah. The Pac-12, I think, had a good Saturday. Yeah, and that Oregon-Washington I, 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 game really made me it, – it really made me wish we got more exciting games out of that, like the Pac-12. Me too. I, me that too. Was, I really enjoyed watching that. It's Seattle. It was great. a great vibe there in Seattle. It looked – it just it was that was a really good game. Um, it was a shame Utah Arizona State was on the Pac-12 network. Not that 21-3 looks like something we really needed to watch, but yeah, no, you're right. For Oregon Washington to be in that midday ABC window, I think was a really good showcase for the Pac-12. Now on to the marquee game of the week: Penn State 28, Michigan 21. The Nittany Lions get out to a 21 to nothing lead, and the Wolverines claw their way back into it. Wolverines have claws, you see, um, and and make a game of it. So in the end, kind of a impressive comeback performance for Michigan, but 
leaves them with two losses, and they're probably not feeling especially great about that at this point in the season. Michigan plays Notre Dame next week, and no one even cares because Michigan is sort of now in the territory of lost season. But I was was pleased, if I'm a Michigan fan, I'm pleased that at least my team, which was down 21-0, came back and and had sort of enough fight in it to get to a point where it gets to complain about the officiating at the end of the game as the reason for its loss, which I think is always the, if you can lose with officiating errors, I think that kind of makes it sort of more digestible because at least you're not mad at your team. Um, This is clearly Connor and we should, we, we should talk about Penn state and Sean Clifford's fun to watch. And KJ Hamler's a freak show. This is just clearly not going to be it for Michigan. As far as this year is concerned, Shea Patterson, 24 for 41, no touchdowns, one interception, it, it this is I think and look they they played they they played well enough at the end in the third and fourth quarters to, to make this one close but Michigan I I believe is still number one as far as biggest disappointments of the year. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been tough because you you thought okay well we're gonna address the problem that that's kind of held us back the offense and kind of modernize what we're doing there and you, you come in and you do that and things have not been great on that side of the ball um and it's yeah it it it, it felt like we, we've talked about this to death but it, we go back to it felt like you had a window here and with ohio state changing coaches turns out the coach change just made ohio state better but um so tough break there so uh not only did ohio state not take the step back you were maybe hoping for but your team doesn't looks like they weren't even good enough to seize on the moment anyway. So Penn state, you know, you, you lose again to Penn state and you just wonder where, what is maybe it's a time for Michigan fans to get realistic about where they stand in this division, which I think is solidly number three right now, um, which is probably not where they envision themselves being, but I think that's, that's where they are. I think that's an interesting point because, yeah, we did think Michigan was going to rise to number one in the Big Ten East this year, and instead they've, they're have they firmly number three, and they haven't played Michigan State yet, so we don't even know if they're number three or if they're number four. And when you look at Michigan and Penn State, which will sort of, yes, be the battle for number two each year in the Big Ten East, they're recruiting at the same level. And Penn State right now is out coaching Michigan. And maybe this is just Michigan's ceiling now is – as far as currently constructed in these lens of the Big Ten, lose every year to Ohio State, and then trade back and forth wins with Penn State and Michigan State based on which one's home and away. And then you hope you don't lose one of your Big Ten West games and you sort of, you know, best case scenario, you're 10-2 and two, or you're 9-3, and three, and that's a sobering reality for Michigan fans this morning. Is the Penn State whiteout like the coolest visual in college football? I'm going to say it is. A thousand percent. That would be... To, to to be able to play in front of that or just to be there would just be that's a bucket list thing right like yeah. what are we doing spending our Sundays podcasting we oh, should be God. making a trip up to Happy Valley I, I think I think Michigan was overwhelmed by that moment too uh, at the beginning um, 21-0 the whiteout absolutely has something to do with it and you know you've got a good thing going as far as the creation of the whiteout some 15 years ago when one of the reasons that people are picking you to win is whiteout, right? Yes. Yeah. Hey, Penn State, Michigan, who you got? And you go, whiteout game? Uh, Penn State. <laughs> uh, BYU upsets Boise State 
BYU, earlier in the season, I did a tweet. Hey, guys, just a heads up. BYU has a chance to cause some real chaos this year. They have maximized those opportunities. They upset USC. They upset Tennessee. And now they have ruined the undefeated play. I mean, they weren't actually going to crash the playoff, but we could have spent a couple more weeks pretending that they had a chance. Uh, Boise State was undefeated heading into this one. Uh, They went to Provo without Hank Bachmeyer and... They left with their first loss of the season. Uh, Baylor Romney, 221 yards and two touchdowns for the Cougs. And this one. Baylor Romney. It's the most BYU name ever. So (laughs) BYU, the fact that they are still standing in mid-October, and by standing I mean capable of beating a really good team, is really surprising because every year BYU as a football independent staggers its schedule at the beginning with its toughest games with the Utahs and the Tennessees and the – USC's and the Washington's because it wants those TV windows because otherwise, you know, there's not going to be any televised BYU-Utah State games. And so BYU gets that early window and sort of gets to be a trendy team every September and then is just walking wounded and just sort of gassed by mid-October. So this, so that is all to say this is, I think, one of the more surprising results of the season because both teams were playing backup quarterbacks, so you can sort of scratch out Hank Bachmeyer didn't play as, as an excuse for Boise State. Kudos to BYU. Massive win. I'm really surprised by it. Trey, I believe you were in Louisville to see Clemson's 45-10 to win over the Cardinal and Trevor Lawrence's 7th uh, and 8th interceptions of the season. My uh, tour of college football continues with a swing up to Louisville. Yeah, you're probably going to want to talk about Trevor Lawrence's interceptions. Look, this was a close one at halftime, 17-3, I believe. Um and then Clemson just kind of opened up a can on him. Travis Etienne has a chance when he touches the ball every single time to, to make a big play. Uh, Louisville's clearly improved, and they're clearly headed under the right direction with Scott Satterfield, and they've got a really fun offense to watch, a lot of misdirection, a lot of intriguing uh, running abilities. They've got two good quarterbacks who they've been toggling in Jawan Pass's absence. But I thought Clemson – I came away pretty impressed, impressed with how Clemson looked uh, – uh, taking away those two interceptions by Trevor Lawrence, which were both boneheaded mistakes. He still made some really good T-Law throws. All right. Well, on Monday's episode of the College Football Daily, Trey and I will be doing our own personal top fives, and I'm sure we will have yet another disagreement about where Clemson falls within that. So tune in tomorrow. That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, we ask that you do one thing this week to help spread the word about the show, whether that's telling a friend or family member that we are getting you caught up every day on the college football news you need to know, or simply leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Trey Scott and our producer, Tani Levitt, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you Monday for the next edition of the College Football Daily. 